I just want to say that those glasses were cool in 1979. I just want to say that, okay? Welcome. We're glad that you're here to Parkview. Uh, we are doing this series called Mountain Dew. I just got to tell you, the whole sermon series is going to be a guy series, but this sermon today is a guy sermon. So if you're here and you're a guy, you're going to be happy. Ladies, you're going to have to deal with me. There's only one lady in the whole story, and she was a literal witch, okay? But we've got blood, we got swords, we got trash talking, we got evil villains, and a lot of fire. I mean, is that a guy story or what, huh, guys? I mean, that sounds good. We got to admit that we're different, you know? I mean, that's important. I've been an apple guy for a long time. You know, I got a MacBook. I had an iPhone early on, iPods, iTouches. I thought, you know what? Um, I ought to get my wife something. So I got her an iRun and um, <laughs> that's when the fight started. Uh, we're different. So uh, so this, this Mountain Dew thing, you know, we're going to get all jacked up on Mountain Dew. I'm going to talk about some of the mountains. And when I when I talk about the mountains in the Holy Land, understand uh, they're, they're like skiing in Wisconsin. They're not really mountains, okay? Here's a couple pictures. Here's a picture I took of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. You can see that there's not much of a, of a ridge there, okay? Here's a, the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, it's just basically a little hill sticking up out of the desert. That's what we're talking about. But when you see this stuff and you realize that, that Abraham did something there and David did something there and Jesus did something there, it brings the whole thing to life. So I, I really wanted to do, you know, I like to do something for Lent that's kind of a bring us back to the reason for the season kind of a deal. And, you know, we got the Mount of Olives working with the whole uh, crucifixion and, and resurrection story. We got Golgotha, obviously, where Jesus was crucified. So I'm taking a step back just a little bit. I'm going to give you a little bit of the history of how we get going up into Easter from some of the mountains. Okay. And Mountain Dew is my favorite drink. Um, you know, I like to be all jacked up on Mountain Dew. And, uh, you know, it's kind of marketed itself as the, uh, as the adrenaline junkies drink. And, and I just changed the do to do, D-O, because I want to talk about specifically about obedience, about what it takes to obey God on these mountains. Because every one of these mountain experiences is something that has to do with obedience. So that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. Uh, we're starting with Mount Carmel, and I was starting to think, you know what? It's getting to be the time where you're hungry. We got Carmel, we got, you know, we got Mountain Dew. I mean, it's probably bad. Here's a picture I took from the top of Mount Carmel. You can just see kind of looking over the valley. It's just a bit of a mountain. That's all it really is. This is really what impressed me. There's still a statue to this day of Elijah. Because this is the famous place where Elijah does duel, does a duel with the 850 prophets of Baal. We just did the story for you. I want to tell, talk you through it and get some application for it. Not only is it a guy story, it's a classic underdog story. It's Virginia Commonwealth University basketball, okay? It's, it's, it's Butler University basketball. It's March Madness, baby. I mean, is that cool or what? I mean, if you don't, is that cool or what? I mean, because if you, if you, if you don't, if you're not watching March Madness right now, I'm just going to tell you, you might be more comfortable worshiping at another church. I'm just saying, okay? Two number 11 seeds and a 10 seed in the Sweet 16. Virginia, VCU, Butler. You just got to love this stuff. I mean, I didn't pick any of those in my brackets, of course. But you got to love those stories. Today, Elijah is the 851st seed in a tournament. Let me give you a little background. Ahab is the king over Israel. He is as wicked as they come. I'm going to be in 1 Kings 16 to 18 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. In, verse 16, in chapter 16, verse 30, it says... Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Somebody asks you, what do you want on your tombstone? That's not it, right? 
I mean, that is definitely not it. He was the worst king in history. I'll give Ahab the benefit of the doubt and say that his life was probably not unlike many of ours were at one time. He was trapped by his own selfish choices. A lot of us have been there. He was unwilling to listen to God. A lot of us have been there. He was unwilling to do the right thing. A lot of us have been there. He married a really evil woman. A lot of us, I'm just kidding. Ahab's wife was Jezebel, okay? I know a lot of people are doing the Old Testament naming thing now, you know? It's like, hey, when we have a kid, we're going to name after somebody in the Old Testament, you know? I, don't go with Jezebel, okay? It, 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 if, you, if you already named your daughter Jezebel, I'm sure she's a nice person, but work off the middle name for a while, okay? Because she was really horrible. And Ahab and Jezebel together took the nation of Israel down the very, very worst path it could go down. They started worshiping Baal, this false god. What does that mean? Well, it's more than just that they worship Baal. It was that the worship of Baal was really just an excuse to party all the time. Okay? So the nation of Israel became Daytona Spring Break 24-7, 365. Israel became girls gone wild and boys gone wilder. And the place was just out of control with immorality. And God finally has enough. And he says, you know what? I need to bring these people back to me because they've gotten so far away. So he decides he's going to send a drought on the nation of Israel. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I want to clarify. Uh, I don't believe that most of the things that we attribute as an act of God, I don't believe that most of those are things that God actually does. Okay? I believe that the earthquake in Japan was because of the tectonic plate shifting. And, and that's why the earthquake and the tsunami happened. I don't believe there was any judgment from God in that. I don't know. God doesn't consult me on these things. But all, what I know is that our world is an imperfect place. And even a lot of times, Jesus said, you know, well, this, this disaster that happened, was it a judgment of God? No, I mean, that, that's not the way God works. But sometimes he does. Sometimes he did. And back here, he was like, he wants to bring the people because the people have gotten so far away, he needed to smack them on the head and say, hey, don't forget about me. So he sends a drought for three years, a drought in the nation of Israel. Before he does it, he sends Elijah the prophet to go warn Ahab and Jezebel that this drought is coming if they don't shape up. And, of course, they didn't shape up, so the drought comes. Elijah's a great prophet, one of the greatest. His name, Elijah. It's a, it's a combination of the name for God, Elohim, and the name for God, Jehovah, Yahweh. Okay? It was a combination. Basically, his name meant the Lord is God. And in case you didn't catch it the first time, the Lord is God. All right? He was that cool of a God. Every time Jews to this day celebrate the Passover feast, they set an extra place at the table for the prophet Elijah. He is that important. He's mentioned 29 times in the New Testament. And even the Muslims today refer to him as a great prophet. Add to that the fact that Elijah is the guy that doesn't die. He just rides off in a fiery chariot off to heaven somewhere. That's his story. I mean, the Bible's awesome. You should read it sometime. It's incredible. But if you ask Elijah... He would have been very, very humble. He would have said, oh, you know what? It's no big deal. I'm not a Daniel. I'm not a Zechariah. I'm not a Zephaniah. I haven't written a bestseller. My longest sermon in the Bible is only 22 words, and I've never had a convert. I just live in a van down by the river. That's what he would have said, I'm pretty sure. And that made him great because he was humble, because he realized that his place was just to do what God wanted him to do. God told Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Whenever Elijah was, was weak, he was strong. Whenever Paul was weak, he was strong. Whenever we're weak, God can be strong. Okay, so Ahab is a bad king, but he's a great politician. 
Meaning what? Meaning he figured out how to blame the drought on somebody else, right? So he blames the drought on Elijah. He said, well, it's Elijah's fault that there's a drought here. It's Elijah and his God that are the problem. So the people all hate Elijah, and he has to go flee for his life and, and, and live in caves for the three years of the drought. Okay, so fast forward three years. It's a dust bowl. Things are horrible in Israel. And there's this showdown at the OK Corral. It's high noon, and Ahab and Elijah are meeting. And Ahab says to Elijah, is that you, troubler of Israel? He's still doing the politicking thing. You know, is that you, troubler of Israel? And Elijah's like, I have not made trouble for Israel. It's you and your father's family. You've abandoned the Lord's command, and you've followed the Baals. So now summon the people. Here's what I, here's what I challenge you to. Summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab said, okay. Okay, this is the first dumb thing right here. Ahab hasn't figured out that God is God yet. Even though there's been three years of drought. Even though Elijah said there was going to be three years of drought. Even though he hasn't figured all those things out, he still accepts this agreement. He is so deceived. He is so bent on his own arrogance and his own plan and his own power and his own way that he agrees. I mean, it's just kind of a reminder for me that I do that sometimes myself. Set it up. Pay-per-view moment. Cue the Eye of the Tiger music. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, in this corner... We have weighing 145 pounds, soaking wet, from a van down on the river in Mount Gilead, the one, the only, the prophet Elijah. You're supposed to boo because you don't like, no, 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 you boo, you boo, boo, because you think he caused the drought, okay, don't, don't get messed up yet, okay. In this corner, weighing a collective 13,000 pounds, the collective cunning prophets of Baal, you're cheer for them, because... Because they let you live like it's Mardi Gras every day. So you think they're awesome, right? Yay, okay, right? And, okay, we're just going back. We're picturing the whole thing. And Michael Buffer grabs a microphone and says, Let's get ready to rumble! See, if you read the Bible more, you'd know when I'm making stuff up. But right now, you don't know. <laughs> Elijah, before, before the rumble happens, Elijah takes the microphone and says, Hang on a second, I'd like to say something. And he grabs that microphone, it's hanging down. He grabs it and he says, Hang on a second. People, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Which way is it going to be? And the people said, you've already done this with the drama, the people said nothing. Why did the people say nothing? People said nothing, I think, because they knew the right answer and they didn't want to say it. You know, they knew who God was. They known the miracles of God. They known the stories of God. They knew who their what their heritage was. They knew who they were as a people. They knew what the right answer was, but they didn't want to answer it because they liked the Baal thing. You know, they liked the worship of false gods that involved all the partying and all the things that was going on over here on the side. They enjoyed that very much. The temple prostitutes and all that crazy stuff that was going on. They liked that, so they said absolutely nothing. Elijah said, "How long will you waver?" That word in the Hebrew means to limp. I think that's fascinating. How long will you waver? It's like back and forth. How long are you going to waver between these two gods? What happens when you try to serve one God and then you try to serve another God at the same time? What happens? It's crippling, isn't it? Because you're like going this way and then you're coming back this way and you can't figure out who you are. Elijah says, how long are you going to limp along in your spiritual life? Let me just stop for a second and ask you a question. 
Have you ever been in a situation where that was going on for you, where you were waffling between what God wanted and what you wanted? Maybe it happened in this very room. You knew that there was this epic battle that was going on. This colossal tug of war that's between your heart and your will. And you're living this, this way all week, but you come in here and then there's this way and they're colliding back and forth and you're trying to figure out if you're going to be a hypocrite, if you're going to be authentic, if you're going to live God's way, if you're not going to live God's way. And it's crippling to your spiritual life, isn't it? That's what he said. And Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You just can't do it. So Elijah said... I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets, and there are 400 prophets on the bench. Their team is deep. So get two bulls for us. Choose one for themselves, cut it into pieces, put it on the, on the wood, but don't set it on fire. I'll prepare the other bull, put it on the wood, and not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is the winner. He is God. And the people said, we're down with that, okay? I love what God and Elijah are setting up here. In ancient literature, just so you know, Baal is pictured as the weather god, okay? Here's a picture they found from Mesopotamia. This is a picture of Baal, okay? And he's in his left hand, he's holding lightning, lightning that's going down to the earth. Baal was the lightning god, okay? Get a hold of this. It's important that you understand this history. Baal is the lightning god. What Elijah is saying is, listen, not only am I outnumbered 850 to 1, but I'm going to come to your home stadium and I'm going to play your game and we're going to use your ball. That's basically what he's saying. I'm going to, I'm going to come in. We're going to do this lightning, this fire from heaven thing. That's your God, right? So let's take it to your level and let's do it your way. So they took the bull and they prepared it and they called on the name of the ba- uh, the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made, singing, Come on, Baal, light my fire. It's in there. And at noon, verse 27, Elijah began to taunt them. I love this. Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. In the literal Hebrew, he actually says, maybe your God's going to the bathroom and he can't come out. I love that he starts talking smack. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, son of a silly person. I blow my nose at you, you empty-headed animal food trough wiper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Come on, don't you go. Listen. Listen. It, thank you, thank you. Listen. If you don't do March Madness or Monty Python, this is seriously the wrong church, okay? Seriously. I, I love that he talks smack to these guys because you know what? It, it makes a prophet seem prophetic, doesn't it, when he do, does something like this? I love that. There's 850 of them. And Elijah's all by himself, and he's trash-talking. Hey, guys, he's sitting on the throne, sitting on the throne, get it? I mean, it's hilarious. You have to have a lot of confidence to taunt your opposition. 
Um, I mean, I was thinking about this, and, and, and of course, I was watching basketball, so I was watching that new McDonald's commercial, uh, which is uh, with uh, LeBron and, uh, and Dwight Howard doing the dunk contest, and Larry Bird eats their lunch. I, I love that commercial. That's fun, phenomenal. But, but the truth is, Larry Bird was a big trash talker. You know that, don't you? Larry Bird went into a three-point contest one time, into the locker room. It was like the NBA three-point contest, and he walked in. He said, oh, I just want to figure out who's going to be second today. I mean, that's just kind of the way he was, you know. He walked one time, you know, he was always hitting the last minute shots. One time they were down, the Celtics were down by two, and he went to a timeout, and there's only like a few seconds left on the clock. And as he walked by the other team's bench, he turned to the guy that was guarding him, and he said, hey, I just want to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to get the ball right there. I'm going to shoot it over your head, and I'm going to win the game. Sure enough, they threw the ball into Bird. He got the ball right there. He shot a three-pointer and won the game. It takes a lot of confidence to be able to taunt your opposition. The difference for Elijah, the difference for Elijah was that his confidence was not in himself. His confidence was in God. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Not, not uh, easy to be a prophet of Baal at that point. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Let me ask you, have you ever been that desperate, that frantic, that frustrated with your gods that you would inflict harm on yourself, that you would even cut yourself? Unfortunately, that's an epidemic today. People that want to inflict a wound because they want to feel something. Basically, that's what it boils down to. Because really, ultimately, the God that they're serving isn't showing up. Let me just say this to you. If you're a cutter, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I know there's a God who loves you. And I know there's a church who would love to embrace you and help you. Can I just say that? They begged Baal to send the fire. But verse 29 sums it up really well. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Go figure. You know, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from God here, but it wasn't really a hard contest for him. Because there is no Baal, okay? There is no other God. That's why Elijah had so much confidence. He knew there was one God. He knew there wasn't another God. Psalms 15, 115, but their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but can't speak, eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, noses but can't smell, hands but can't feel, feet that can't walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Well, it's Elijah's turn. He's had enough. He's given him six hours. He says, it's my turn. Let's, it's my turn to go. Here we go. Elijah said to the people, come here to me. And they came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each tribe that descended from Jacob. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull, and put it into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering. Do it again and do it again. The third time they did it. And water ran around the altar and even filled up the trench. What's he doing? Well, he sets up the sacrifice just like he should. And then he does this really strange thing. He pours 12 bucketfuls of water on the sacrifice. Now, I'm not an expert in pyrotechnics, but I understand the basic premise is that if you want to start a fire, you use dry wood. Do you get that? What is he doing? You know what Elijah's doing here? He's getting cocky. I mean, he's trash talking, and now he's getting cocky. He's not getting himself cocky. He's getting God cocky. I love that. 
pour 12 containers of water all over the sacrifice. What is he doing? Elijah is saying, listen, not only am I going to come and I'm going to play your game in your stadium with your ball, but I'm going to blindfold myself and tie my shooting hand behind my back. What he's doing is everything he possibly can to make sure that it's humanly impossible for this to happen. Let me say that again. He's doing everything he possibly can to make sure that it's humanly impossible for what's about to happen. It's a great reminder for me this week. Because we've been working this week, I mean, we're, we're working around here to try to figure out how to get more room for you. Uh, if you look around at the 11 o'clock service, it's always full. There's probably people in the overflow, hard to find a parking spot. And to be honest with you, the 9 and the 4 last night were full as well. And the 545's got a lot of people in it. And we were the fastest growing church in the five-state area last year. And then we added 2,500 more people on Christmas Eve than we had the year before. And so part of being who we are here as leadership in this church is to try to figure out how we can make more room for more people because that's what we want to be able to do. We want to be able to reach as many people as God brings us. But what tends to happen and what happened to us even in the meeting that we had this week is what we tend to do in our humanness is we tend to we tend to sit there and go okay if this is going to happen here's the timing we need to go to the village now we need to make this happen and then we need to get you know financing in place for here then we need to do this campaign here and we don't want to go into debt so we need this to happen and this to happen and set up all the dominoes and then as i was working on this sermon i was thinking you know what Maybe what we need to do is come in and pour a big bucket of water on the whole thing and just pray, you know? I mean, maybe that's what we need to do. I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying, I mean, we don't want to go into debt. We're, Jesus said, you're going to build, you should make plans. We're going to figure all those things out, trust me. But if we get everything figured out to the point where it's humanly possible for things to happen in this church, then we just messed up the whole thing. We just screwed the whole thing up. Look around you. How did all this happen? This didn't happen with human wisdom. This didn't happen with us getting all our ducks in a row and making sure that everything happened. This happened because of faith. The reason that there are too many people in this service is because of faith. Because God is doing it. I don't think Satan would send too many people to church. He might have sent some of you, but not, you know. (laughs) We'll deal with that later. I, I just think that it was a great reminder for me this week. Hey. Maybe I should just pour water on it and see what God can do. Years ago, uh, you kids aren't going to understand this. There's this classic movie called Ben-Hur. And uh, Charlton Heston was uh, the guy who was the, the main character in Ben-Hur. And he, uh, he uh, was driving the chariot. It's so funny to tell the story because there's no digital photography. There's no way to do special effects back then. So when they did the chariot race, kids, you have to understand how this worked. Charlton Heston had to literally drive the chariot in a race. Okay. And, and, and he's having problems with it because he said, I, I'm getting to where I can learn to, to do the chariot. And he went to the director and he said, listen, I think I can drive the chariot, but I don't know if I can win the race. And the director, William Wyler, said, you stay in the race. I'll make sure you win. I think of that story a lot because that's the essence of our faith in God. God's not saying, hey, you get everything figured out. You do it all. You, you know, do everything that you can and you get almost up to the point and then I'll come and finish it out. God, God says, hey, pour water on it if you want to. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. You stay in the race and I'll be in charge. How about that? 
So then Elijah just prays. That's, that's what he did. He didn't dance around the altar. He didn't shout. He didn't cut himself. He didn't cry out. He didn't lose control. He just prayed. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Boom. The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and evaporated all the water. Because when God does it, it's a lot more spectacular than anything we could have possibly figured out. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is a classic drama in my youth ministry days. Um, I did youth ministry before I became a preacher here at this church. And what we would do at church camp is we, we love to do the Elijah story because it's so cool to reenact. And I'll give you a little hint on how to do it, okay? So you set up the bonfire pit, and, you know, in case you kids are, are, are there. You set up the bonfire pit, and you get everybody around it, and you reenact the story. And the trick is that you have a wire coming from the bonfire pit up into a tree. And up in the tree is a guy, it was usually me because I wanted to be the pyro guy. You, up in the tree, you'd have a guy with a, a roll of toilet paper that had been soaked in lighter fluid, okay, with a lighter. And at the, just the right moment. And the other thing that you did to set up that kids would never understand is that you would have them dump the pails of water on the altar, except it would really be diesel fuel because, you know... <laughs> It was clear and it looked the same and, you know, they didn't know the difference. So then, you, I, you know, I'd light the toilet paper and send it down the wire and it goes, boom, boom, and blow up. And the whole thing was incredible. Uh, I've been telling that story at every service. And last service, somebody told me that they counted 12 OSHA violations with that thing I just did. That's <laughs> okay. I'm not doing youth ministry anymore. Your children are safe. But just imagine... What it was like to be in, I mean, it was so cool to see it. Even though you knew we were setting it up, it was such a cool reminder of the things that God had done. Elijah, when I, when I say that God, that, that, that this was an underdog story, I don't mean that it was God's underdog story. Please don't misunderstand this, okay? Elijah was the one that was the underdog. I think this is cool doing this the weekend that the youth were leading. Didn't they do an un- unbelievable job? I want to thank you again, youth. Good job, you guys. <clears throat> Um, it's just so cool to me because, you know what, well, listen, I, I, a bunch of them sitting over here. I know that at school, a lot of times you feel like Elijah. Some, you feel like it's 850 to 1. I get that. I really do. And I know some of you feel like that at work. Some of you feel like that in your family. You feel like it's everybody else is over here and I'm over here and I'm the underdog. Listen to me. What you learn from the story of Elijah is that when you're standing in the place that God wants you to stand, you are never a minority. Amen. I'm not sure trash talking or tying your hand behind your back is a good idea, but when you are standing in the place where God wants you, you are never in the minority. Well, later that day, the sky started turning black and the rain finally came. And I mean, just an incredible moment. Let me ask you a question. Why, why was Elijah confident in God? Well, why am I confident in God? Because when I look back, I can see the things that God has done. When Elijah looked back, he could remember that, you know, um, three years ago, God said it wasn't going to rain, and it didn't rain. Uh, five or six years ago, when there was this widow who had a son die, 
Elijah prayed and God brought the kid back from the dead because Elijah prayed. When Elijah was hiding out in the cave, God sent ravens with food to feed him in the cave when he was hiding out. All Elijah had to do to have faith in God at this moment going forward was to remember backward. And can I just encourage you in the same thing in your own spiritual life? All you need to do to think about going forward is to remember spiritually what God has done going backward. Think back. I mean, that's all i got to do when I think about our overcrowding situation is to think, well, this isn't the first time we've been overcrowded. We've been overcrowded for a long, long time. And every time we come back with a new idea and God allows more things to happen, that's the way it works. I've seen God work over and over again, and it gives me confidence, not in myself, but in God. The problem is most churches don't operate that way. Most Christians don't operate that way. heard about a, a little town in Tennessee where this uh, nightclub wanted to go in and set up this big nightclub in this little town. And there was a, a very strong uh, conservative Baptist church in the town, and they did not want the nightclub in their town. So they had this big fight, you know, in the public arena, and they tried to keep the nightclub from coming in. And the nightclub owner was an atheist, and he didn't care what the church said. He just wanted to bring it in, and the village officials couldn't do anything to stop it. So he built his nightclub. And several months later, after the nightclub was built, it got struck by lightning and burned to the ground. The nightclub owner sued the church. He literally sued the church because it was an act of God that caused his nightclub to burn down. But the leaders of the church, I mean, think about this. What do you do with it? The leaders of the church said, we didn't have anything to do with this. And the judge, in his final statement, said... Here in this corner, I'm having a problem because here in this corner, I have an atheist who is blaming a God he says doesn't exist. And in this corner, I have a church who denies the power of the God that they pray to. (laughs) You got to make up your mind. Two things I want you to take away from this. I got my rocks up here. I dug them out of the landscaping out there yesterday because you know what? This is one little thing that caught me. Did you notice that it said Elijah had to go ahead and put the scripture up? Elijah had to rebuild the altar. Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him. And look at this next verse. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Why, why was the altar of the Lord in ruins? Because they'd been doing Baal party worship, right? So the altar of God was in ruins because they hadn't actually done anything in God and serving God and in worshiping God for a really, really long time. So the very first thing that Elijah had to do is he had to go and rebuild the altar of God. And I thought about that. I thought about that in our life. I thought, you know what? That's a cool metaphor for us. Maybe what needs to happen in your life, first application from Elijah, is maybe what you need to do is start by rebuilding the altar of the Lord. Dads, can I talk to you for a second? Guys, this is a guy's sermon. Let me just tell you. Maybe that's what you need to do. Moms, maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe all of us need to think about, you know what, it's been a while since I've really worshipped the Lord. And the first thing, the first place to start is to rebuild the altar. What does that look like? I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like for you. But whatever it is that helps you worship the Lord, you go back and you, you make that a priority in your life. And then when you rebuild the altar of the Lord, then you remember that it's on the altar of the Lord that you're supposed to lay your life. Then you remember that if your marriage is in trouble, you need to bring it back to the altar of the Lord. If your job situation's got a problem, you bring it back to the altar of the Lord. If your family's messed up, you bring it back to the altar of the Lord because that's the place where we lay ourselves down. That's the first application I want to I encourage you to make is the first place you start is you, you rebuild the altar. The second one is 
it's time to answer the question. It's time to answer the question. Elijah said, how long will you waver between the two opinions? Rebuild the altar and then it's time to answer the question. How long are you going to waver between famine and rain? Between death and life, between misery and happiness, between guilt and forgiveness, between the American dream and God's reality, between faking it and following Him, between existence and really living. How long are you going to waver? When are you going to make a decision to really follow God? You live in your own little world, you can worship Baal, you can lay on your bed and do whatever you want and think whatever you want and live in your own little world. You can follow God and and find out how deep this thing goes. You can find out that there is a supernatural world out there. You can find out that there is a God, that he is the God who is the Lord of the universe, and he wants to be in your life. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Elijah prayed, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done these things at your command. It's time to decide who you want to worship. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, worship Him. If something else is God, worship it. But take the pill and figure it out. It's time to make a decision. It's time to make the altar in your life. It's time to make a decision in your life. Again, Elijah said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I'm your servant and have done these things at your command. Here's, here's what my prayer is going to be. This is, this is me putting myself in Elijah's place for just a moment and asking God for a sign in your life. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back to them again. That's going to be my prayer right now. That maybe during this communion time right now, maybe during uh, something that happens this week, that somehow, some way, that God will answer me and He will show up in your life in some kind of a way. I, I, I'm hoping it's not a fireball in your backyard barbecue pit, but I'm hoping that God will show up somehow, some way in your life this week and show you that He wants to turn your heart back to him not show you that he's mad at you not show you that he's going to zap you not show you that he wants to send you to hell show you that he loves you and show you that he wants to turn your heart back to him might happen right now during communion we take this time every week to to remember the fact that jesus did not waver between two opinions Jesus did not limp in his spiritual life. He followed the Father. He followed the plan. He went to the cross and he died for us so that his blood could pay for all of our sins. And whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We commemorate that at communion right now. And I'm going to ask God to answer me and show up in your life and show you that He is there and that He really wants your heart back. Let's pray. Well, Lord, that's what I said, and so that's what I pray. I pray that You will will show up and that You will turn their hearts back somehow, some way. Whatever it is, that there will be some feeling, some sign, something in their life that will show them this week that You really are there. And that they will respond by taking the red pill and following You and figuring out how deep this wormhole can go, that they will respond by worshiping you, by rebuilding the altar in their own life, in their family's life, in in, in whatever's going on, and that they will remember 
that you are the Lord, the God of the universe, and there is no other God. Lord, be with us all as we commune right now. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.